HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, June 28th, 2022, and we'll be talking cider. We've This will be our third cider episode of June, and I'm really thrilled to have these great guests with us today. So we're going to go around the room and, and introduce themselves. They're all, they're all either legends or rising stars of the New England cider scene. Um, let's start with Eleanor. Hey, I'm Eleanor Leger from Eden Specialty Ciders in Northern Vermont. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. Josh? Hi, I'm Josh Brummage. I'm from the East Hampton Cider Project, and I'm located in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Great. Pete? Um, this is Pete Indris uh, with Bird Dog Cider. We're located in the seacoast in Greenland, New Hampshire. And Steve? Steve Wood, Poverty Lane Orchards, Farnham Hill Ciders, Lebanon, New Hampshire. All right. So I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network, which supports a wide range of podcasts about food and drink, including cider and craft beer, uh, for over 12 years. So uh, let's start with Steve. Steve, you know, you're, you're, you are the legend in the group. Um, we had an event last week north of Boston called Cider Feast New England, and um, there's always a lot of talk about you. People look up to you. People want cuttings from you. People want juice. Um, just t- tell us about how you got started at Poverty Lane and then fast forward to how you're supporting a, a lot of younger and, and, and startup cider makers. <laughs> Jimmy, it's good, to, it's good to hear your voice. And uh, uh, thanks for asking another impossible question. Um, <laughs> right. Um, I've been working here since 1965, off and on for a while and then on. Um, I've been growing apples my whole life. And uh, let's see, because of various 
bits of luck, happenstance, whatever. Uh, we, my excellent bride, Louisa, and I got to know a fair bit about English and French cider and cider making, and actually more to the point, cider apple growing. Fundamental thing is we are apple growers. That's, what, that's why we are in the cider game to begin with. And we had a, because of various things going on in the apple industry, we had this uh, brain gas thing that uh, we, we thought we might try to get, find out whether we could grow good cider apples in, in North America. And so we did the research and the work to try to figure that out. And we wound up planting a bunch of strange inedible apples that are only good for making cider. And then we realized we needed to learn how to make cider. And then we did a fair bit. I'm talking about decades here, but, um, you know, we learned how to make half decent cider. And then we spent a bunch of time pressing it forward. And then we figured out that we couldn't really press it forward because there wasn't an industry. Then we set out to try to, well, make a category or help a category to evolve. Um, and then cider sprang up um, amazingly, thrillingly. And, you know, we have a lot of new great colleagues and everything. And if we're the godparents of an industry, it's an industry that has in many ways not much to do with what we do because we're just apple growers. And we will never put chipotle and maple into a cider. We just make straight up cider from the fruit we grow. And we've been trying to get fruit we think is good fruit for cider, growing good fruit from our ground, uh, growing here for quite a long time, quite like 30 years or something. And meanwhile, we've been, uh, let's see, uh, encouraging other growers across the country to do the same. And uh, I, got, I don't know, how's that, Jimmy? That's the <laughs> best I can do. It, it's great. There's, you know, we, we've done shows with you before, but I, I still feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, but let's, let's, let's jump fast forward. One, one little thing, an insight. I met you when you were only doing still cider in bottles. And then you kind of went ahead and went to sparkling cider in bottles. And then you went to draft. Um, were those painful for you? I mean, because you, you, you've had to keep evolving at, as a cider producer. No. No, we were happy. The thing that would be painful for us and that we won't do is make something. We're not making flavored apple drink. And they, listen, people misunderstand this. We don't disdain what people are making, and I drink a lot of it, and a lot of it's really well-made. Shannon Edgar's hibiscus stuff, I, 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 yeah, Mike Beck's apricot stuff, they're good drinks. We're just making our straight-up cider. I mean, if you think of us as sort of early days Cote de Rhone, right? It only took a 1,000 years to get Cote de Rhone white, right? <laughs> you know, we're 30 years into it. We're just, that's all we're trying to do. Grow fruit on our ground and make something that reflects that, that fruit that is delicious. And so, fizzy, keg, bottle, can, whatever. We're, we're happy to go with that. 
What we're not happy to go with is great huge slugs of sugar and, you know, really coriander and um, Scottish bell peppers. You know, we're just not doing the flavoring thing. And fair enough, we don't disdain, as I say, don't take this as disdain for the other stuff. Most happy for people to make things that people want to drink. We just ain't doing it. We're apple growers. Oh, yeah. And I've, I've known you a long time. I want to go fast forward. The other side of you that I think that I didn't realize for a long time was just how much you're responsible for getting cuttings out and juice to a lot of other cider makers. Let, let's talk more about that. Okay, so I, I, just briskly, we uh, one way or another, <laughs> mostly within the law, we um, we we tried oh I don't know a few hundred varieties. This is I'm talking about the early '80s and through the '80s. And this is Lulu and me out there with our grafting knives um, to try to assess how they grew in our conditions or how they might grow. Uh, and mind you, this is before we knew the first damn thing, really. I mean, what we knew about cider making, we'd learned in other countries, or about cider even. But um, I had already been growing apples for quite a long time, and so we, you know, whatever. Uh, we evaluated how those things would grow. Great. We, we, we picked some varieties that we thought would do well here. For the most part, we did pretty well with that. When things really started to move, people got interested in wood. Wood meaning propagation material, that is to say, the way you get the same variety going in your orchard. Um, and I'm not gonna go in unless you push it um, into the genetics and, or, or rather uh, the reproductive capability of an apple, but you need grafting wood to get the same variety. We had the wood. We gave it to people. We continued to give it to people. There was a sudden moment when we went from giving away 500 scions away to giving away 15,000 scions. Um, and one way or another, the variety mix that we've chosen uh, has kind of spread across the country. We've never charged for that. You know, maybe not because we're so as generous as people sometimes credit us with being, it's too hard. It's not enough of a business. It's not our business. We don't want to do that. So we just give it away. So there's that. Ain't that cool? And uh, it is cool. On the other, on the other hand, we uh, we sell our fruit. This was not really the main plan. The plan was to sell whatever fruit was left over from our making our cider. But we were assuming that that the American cider industry would if it ever emerged at all, would develop along the lines of, well, kind of of wine. I don't want to say cider is wine, but a land-based industry where the product took its value from the fruit and where it was grown. That, you know, a lot of cool things happened. That ain't one of them. Um, I mean, and it has happened in small ways. A lot of people are doing pretty well with that. But you know that the big cider industry is not that. Um, so we, uh, we kind of shifted, we and a couple of other growers in Northern New England, and I'll name them, uh, Ricker Hill 
Farm and Apple Hill Farm, Bricker Hill in Maine and Apple Hill in, in uh, Concord, we kind of joined forces. We all had some of this stuff growing. We all completely agree on growing conditions and whatever, and, but also practices. We started selling. Um, I've been selling juice for a long time, but, but you know, we sell juice together um, to other cider makers across the country. And, you know, all we're doing with the, our, you know, our cider is selling apples. So if somebody wants to buy our juice or our apples to make their own cider, cool. We're good. We're, we are apple growers. All three of us are apple growers. And, See, and that, that's it. That's what that's we do. That's a great intro. <laughs> we got we got you uh, put in your in your place. We love it. Um, we'll go around the room too. So, <laughs> so we got just so you know, heads up, people. We've got two experienced legends of, of the cider world in New England, and and two newbies. So we're going to go around the room first with Eleanor. Eleanor, a little bit about your background. Um, you know, Vermont and the ice cider. Yeah, so um, we, my husband and I were in Montreal for the holidays in 2006 and stopped in at the Marche Atwater and there was this guy pouring this delicious ice cider stuff in the middle of the market and we tasted it and brought a bottle back and shared it with our family and looked at each other and said, why is nobody making this in Vermont? Because, you know, if you think about wine and terroir the terroir of vermont is not where you would expect great red wine to come from but you know cold weather and interesting apples we do that really well and you can imagine the best ice cider in the world could come from vermont and we're like let's just try making some in our basement um and we did and we we are not growers primarily we are primarily cider makers um but we, we come at it from a wine point of view and we're really interested in amazing fruit. We do have a thousand trees of various ilks and health in our, <laughs> on our property, um, but we're really happy to buy um, great fruit from people who are interested in passionate growers, including Steve. And, and you've evolved too, because from that ice cider, tell us about the aperitivo you had and you know the journey through your sparkling bottles and everything. Yeah, I mean, we, when we started with ice cider, as Steve knows, it was 2007. Cider was not a thing generally at that point. Um, and then Angry Orchard entered the market and created a name for cider, and cider evolved into all kinds of things. And we, with the with the relationships we had developed with people growing interesting fruit, we were like, oh, we could we could try making something dry and try making something sparkling and we ended up making some aperitifs in partnership with Deirdre Heacon at Lagargista. Um and we are um uh uh excited about uh the creative opportunities with apples different varieties different orchards different things to do with them so we're a little more um adventurous and our cider making and all the different skews that we make than some people are, um, but we, we would get bored otherwise. And I think we take a big cue, cue from Steve in terms of whatever we do, we want to make sure that the the quality of the amazing fruit um, shines through. 
And over the years, I remember when you came out with your dry rosé, sparkling rosé, that was just a must-have cider. And, um, and then you had your like special bottles, like the Cinderella. Um, and now you, now you have cans as well. Tell us about going into canning. Um, well, we were sort of playing around with cans in various ways, a little bit on our own. We did a great um, New England cider-grown experiment with Steve and Shannon at Steve Wood here and, and Shannon Edgar at Stormalong. Um, and, and that sold well enough that we thought, well, maybe we should think more seriously about cans. And we started to, to actually spend some money on label designs and things like that. And then the pandemic hit. And because so much of our business had been focused on selling through distribution to restaurants, our, you know, everything just totally fell apart. And um, we were like, uh, we need to produce cans for retailers because restaurants aren't around anymore. And fortunately got one of those wonderful idle loans that allowed us to do that. So that was the real push over the cliff into cans. So what was the challenge of, of canning? Because yeah, it so can be the, hit or miss. Yeah, well, the thing for us is like we still make cider like wine from the point of view of, um, you know, produce pressing the apples pretty close to harvest when they have all their flavor still um, and aging the cider before it goes into the package so that you get real fruit character developing. Um, and for that reason, we were really worried about stability in the can because we were only going to make the stuff like we're doing like a big run once a year. We kind of bet the company. <laughs> like if something went wrong, that would be the end of us because it like doubled the volume of the, of anything we produced, um, of everything else we produced. Um, and so, um, we spent a lot of time with folks like Ben Calvi at Woodchuck, just trying to figure out how do we, how do we make sure it's stable? And we're really lucky in Vermont that we've got big producers like Woodchuck and Citizens and to some extent Stowe Cider, who's doing a lot of canning for us now, who, um, you know, have a good quality operation and we can work with to make sure that what we're doing is going to be stable. It's a great intro. So, you know, that we've, we have two real legends in the cider world and we've got two relative newbies. Um, so we're going to get intros with them. Let's start with Josh from East Hampton Cider Project in Massachusetts. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Um, yeah, basically my history with uh, cider is a little bit different than uh, Eleanor's or Steve's. Basically back in 2007, I was living abroad in Ireland, uh, studying abroad over there in Cork. And um, prior to that, I'd never had, I don't think a hard cider in my life. Um, but I started drinking a lot of the Irish ciders over there and when I returned home six months later, um, I said, you know what, I'm going to try to make some of the cider myself. Um, I was also a home brewer at the time. I've been home brewing since basically high school. And, um, but I'd never tried making a cider before. So I went out uh, to the store, you know, bought some juice, um, threw it in a carboy, made it. And uh, it tasted really awful. <laughs> it was watery and bland and, you know, didn't have good flavor to it. And I couldn't exactly figure out um why this was the case um but you know i kept trying it. i kept trying to play around with making ciders and using macintosh apples and other things that were available to me at the local orchards and um at the time i was actually living in northampton mass this is about 10 years ago now prior to me moving to east hampton 
Um, there was a store there called Provisions. It's still there. And they sold a lot of uh, craft ciders. And so actually, um, Eleanor and Steve's companies, I eat in, in Farnham Hill, they were some of my first um, introductions to quality craft ciders. I believe, um, you know, uh, Eden's Heritage Dry, I believe, was one of the ciders that I had tried. And uh, Farnham Hills Kingston Black was another cider that I tried. I was like, man, this is amazing. I said, why can't I make <laughs> cider like this? Uh, this stuff is like... <laughs> well, you're coming in with great, great taste. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this stuff blew my mind. It was, um, I mean, I really look up to these guys. And another one was Shaxbury at the time. Uh, they were making some really nice uh, bottles um, of cider as well that I could get down there. And so every Friday, I'd just basically go and... Um, I'd get my paycheck and I'd go and I'd try a different bottle of cider, uh, you know, craft quality bottle of cider. And that sort of is what really got me into uh, the craft cider scene. And, uh, you know, really got me into wondering, you know, what's the difference here? And I started learning about all the different apple varieties and the history of cider apples in the United States. And, you know, how cider was a big, um, a big product, you know, prior to prohibition. And it's, uh, you know, faded away from the American cider culture. It just doesn't exist anymore or didn't exist at the time that I was starting to drink cider. And uh, I said, well, if I want to make cider like this for myself, because that's all I was thinking of at the time, uh, I want to start planting some of these trees. And so um, I bought <laughs> some trees from uh, John Bunker up at uh, Fedco and Cummins Nursery. And I started planting trees on about a half acre uh, that I have. And um, that was probably in 2018, I believe, uh, is when I first started planting some of those trees for myself. And at this time, you know, I still didn't have any um, great aspirations of having a commercial cidery. Um, I just wanted to make cider for myself and my family and, and enjoy it and kind of, you know, push the craft at a really small homebrew scale. And um, I think it was in 2020, you know, when the uh, pandemic was happening, you know, I was uh, jobless at the time and I was really thinking about it. And I said, well, you know, if I want to get this operation up and going at some point in my lifetime to make a commercial cider, I think now's the time to do it. <laughs> so I don't know if that was optimal timing or, or not, um, but I started pushing through and getting my licensing together for uh, opening up um, a hard cidery. And, um, in late 2020, I think October 2020, I got my licensing through and I started pressing up some of my first um, batches of uh, commercial hard cider in my cidery. And at the time, you know, I was only doing about uh, 50 gallons or so. It was basically just uh, cider that I'd either uh, foraged from Western Mass along the roadside, uh, grabbing apples in the back of a truck and bringing them back and pressing them. Or it was also some specialty varieties that um, I had got from local orchards in the area, primarily East Hampton and uh, West Hampton, Mass. Here, and um, so yeah, I've been I'm fairly new. I've been in the business since late 2020. Last year uh, was my first year actually making sales, and then this year is my second year um, making sales, primarily in local bottle shops, restaurants, and some farmer markets in the East Hampton, Mass. area. So that's kind of oh, that's man. kind of my intro. That's great. Yeah, and it was great meeting you last week at Cider Feast in England. Uh, another up and coming cider maker, uh, Pete from Bird Dog Cider, 
tell us about your background and and is it true your dad uh is a a farmer up in new york <laughs> that's true yeah jimmy uh, thank you for inviting me to be here i'm honored to be among this crowd yeah, I, I you know I, my my operation here at Bird Dog is on a real similar uh, timeline as as Josh just mentioned. We've just been around for a couple years now, and we're growing, uh, so we're sort of in our infancy. But I actually have a a pretty long background, really, from the growing side of things. Um, I grew up on a commercial apple farm. My dad still runs that farm, uh, so that's in Sodus, New York, which is kind of in the heart of uh, apple country in upstate New York. I actually grew up in a in a neighboring town, and and uh, one of my longtime best friends is uh, someone that uh, this this group and the cider world may know, Mr. Ryan Burke. Uh, he and I have been uh, close pals for a long time, and and grew up in that uh, in that apple country. And my dad, starting about forty years ago, uh, right after I was born, um, basically took uh, that the farm that he purchased. Um, from what was all kind of old, you know, big sort of standard size trees and started, you know, cutting them down and replanting and uh, putting the entire farm into sort of modern high density and, and trellised uh, fruit, focusing on, you know, the fresh fruit market. And that's where the farm stands today. Um, but he, you know, my, my dad, I credit him a lot in terms of trying to stay ahead of the market. Um, you know, mostly that's been sort of trying to predict what people's uh, choices will be in the supermarkets uh, with new fresh fruit varieties and so forth. But he has also seen kind of the cider movement, just like we have. And um, about four years ago, he put in 10 acres of high density uh, cider varieties. And uh, I'm pretty excited about him. He's unfortunately, like many other cider growers, been hammered by fire blight recently. But he does have some interesting uh, techniques in terms of growing the infamously difficult Kingston Black, which uh, could be exciting in, in years to come if, if we can crack that sort of biennial nut. Um, but uh, he's still running that farm. And, and as of now, I'm actually sourcing my fruit from, from New York and uh, having it pressed at a local cidery in Williamson, New York, by uh, an, another cider maker uh, at Embark. Um, Jake Lagener. And uh, and then I ship it over here and I, I pump it into my tanks and sort of take it from there. But I, you know. Just tell us about yeah. the, the region the region you're in, Pete, because there, there's like a micro region thing going on in New England. Yeah, our, uh, our, which... my, you know, my, my wife and I told her on, on our first date about 10 years ago, I said, you know, I want to buy a farm someday. And so she can't, um, she can't blame me for that at some point uh, after all this work that she sees I'm putting in. Um, so that, you know, I always remind her of that. But we we ended up after, you know, it took us a, nearly uh, six years of, of pursuit. We found um, a, a farm property here in, in the seacoast of New Hampshire in Greenland. Uh, that's 60 acres. Um, and we're right off a of Great Bay. So we have a nice sort of tempered climate. Um, you know, based on the bay and the ocean. It's uh, actually historically a pretty big apple growing region that's mostly gone to housing development in recent years. But um, our property is under easement with the Nature Conservancy. And so it's uh, protected in that sense from development. And it does allow for agriculture. And so a big part of what we're doing here as a farm-based cidery um, 
is to uh, grow our own fruit, uh, focus on that quality. And over time, we'll, we'll draw more and more from the farm here. Uh, so it, just in May this year, I put in our first half acre, which is 600 trees on uh, you know high density um, rootstocks, and, and they'll be trellised. Eleanor, this this to me, this is like the ultimate cider geek episode because I have Steve Wood and Eleanor Leger and these two newbies. Um, you, you had a really good question about about the new wave, and wh- wh- why don't you give us an intro and and start that conversation? Well, it was it was maybe less a question and more just sort of a amusing observation about the evolution of the cider industry and sort of thinking back to, you know, uh, there was woodchuck and then there was a wave probably, um, started by Mr. Wood here in the mid to late nineties and into the early two thousands. We had Diane Flint and Autumn Stochek, um, and, um, maybe, maybe me and others like me at the end of that, um, getting into cider. There were only about 80, 85. Sorry, trees. you gotta say Terry Maloney. And Terry, yeah. oh yeah, and Terry, of course. <laughs> Let's say West County, Eve's West Eve County, absolutely. In Coleraine, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, uh, kind of a, a real resurgence of interest in cider made from interesting apples. Um, and then, and then there was angry orchard and that was a whole different wave. That was a, you know, the cider conference went from like 35 people to 80 people to 120 people to 600 people <laughs> the next year. And it was all about beer. It was all beer people coming in and putting things in cans and thinking about recipes and, you know, turnaround batches in a number of weeks as opposed to months. Um, And that had a big impact for a long time. We are seeing now with the pandemic, a lot of new startups like Josh and Pete um, who are, coming in, not from a beer perspective, but from a passion for the fruit, the product, making great quality, putting things in 750 ml bottles. Um, And I find it super exciting. Um, Everywhere I look, there are new cideries starting up and they don't necessarily have plans to be big and take over the world. They just wanna make a difference and grow great fruit where they are in their community. Eleanor, in addition to being Eden Ciders, do you have another hat in the cider industry? Um, I um, uh, followed my friend Steve onto the the uh, American, what's now the American Cider Association, um, and I'm the the current board president. So you, you've got some data behind you as well. Yeah. 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 So what, what what question would you ask? I want to get you guys talking. What would you ask Pete? And what would you ask Josh and see if you can jump in too? Because they are just starting out, but they seem like they know tons already. Um, well, I'd, I'd love to know from both of you, like what, um, 
Well, there's the like what what the what the industry person in me wants to know, and there's like the cider maker person in me wants to know. <laughs> so you got two questions. You got all day. Don't worry. <laughs> so the, the industry person in me wants to know, like, what what are your ambitions? Like, why why did you do this? What do you want? What do you want? What what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, Josh, yeah, you know, um, from an industry perspective, um, just starting up with the East Hampton Cider Project, I gave it a really local name, uh, primarily because this is where I started, um, but also just because my vision of cider 30 years from now is that every town will have, you know, their own lo little local cidery that uh, people can pop into and have community there and, you know, have some good food, have some good eats and have some good drinks. And um, I think that's totally possible. So I, I think when I started my little project here, planting my trees in my yard and um, this home fermenting, uh, I really envisioned a really local uh, experience. And, um, you know, over the last year or two, um, actually being in the industry, you know, I can see that expanding a little bit into, say, Western Mass or Massachusetts, um, maybe Southern Vermont, something like that as well. But overall, you know, my ambition is to be a, um, produce high quality cider, um, basically with no compromise. Um, and whatever that means, if, if people want to um, buy it and bring it home to their their states or their little local communities, um, that's fine. But I'm, I'm really passionate about the fruit, um, the high quality cider fruit. And I don't want to compromise that just to grow, uh, per se. So, well, it is nice to be able to um, make a living at what you're doing. At the same time, I don't really have any ambitions to grow more than just um, a local uh, craft cidery. And like I said, I think that will be determined mostly by, um, you know, the fruit I have access to and uh, creating a local community that, that supports me as well. That's a great one. And Pete, your your industry legacy view. Um, bear with me, guys. This might sound a little bit cheesy, but it, it's true. So I, I told you I grew up on a farm, you know, in my teenage high school years and college years. I worked uh, for my dad on the farm and I had a lot of time, you know, tying trees and just doing um, uh, tedious sort of menial labor, uh, driving tractors, mowers, sprayers, a lot of time to think. And, and uh, what I often thought about was, you know, sharing uh, the farm with other people and letting them see what was going on there. Uh, and I think with respect to what I want to accomplish here, it's really just about community. It's about bringing people to our location, um, sharing experiences with them and allowing them to sort of share with the land. And I think, you know, coming out of COVID, at least what I'm observing, is that there's a trend towards that sort of thing. People kind of want to get their hands dirty. Um, you know, and I think this has been actually, you know, a trend for uh, several years now. It may have just been accelerated by COVID. But, um, what you know, I, I want to allow for that type of experience here. And it's going to be focused around apples, you know, good quality apples and good quality cider. Uh, that's, that's what I'm interested in. And Eleanor, your, your other question, but from the cider... That's that's awesome, you guys. You you just warm the cockles of my heart. What can I say? <laughs> um, and my my cider maker question is like, what's your favorite fruit varieties, and what are you doing with them? <laughs> 
and why? Why are they your favorite? <laughs> you know, there's so many to explore. This is just what I love about apples. You know, there's thousands of varieties. And um, I love that the cider movement is bringing back all these old varieties that no one's ever heard of. That's actually one of the toughest questions to answer now in the cider world is like when people ask me, well, what do you use? It's like, well, does it matter? Because you probably haven't heard of them. Um, but, um, you know, I, I am really right now a big fan of Golden Russet. Um, to be honest with you, I don't have nearly the experience uh, of, you know, Eleanor or Steve working with all these varieties, um, but I'm hoping to get there. And but yeah, golden russet is really a, a favorite of mine right now. It's just got a wonderful flavor profile, great sugar, great acid, um, and there's a lot you can do with it. Go ahead, Josh. Great, Josh. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, I think um, one of my most interesting varieties I think right now is um, Newton Pippin. Um, for me, I just <clears throat> this is only my second year fermenting it, um, but it just comes out with some really interesting qualities to it um sometimes i pick up on like some floral notes or sometimes almost like tropical type notes um i don't know how to describe it exactly it's kind of like saying how do you describe a macintosh you know everyone knows what it tastes like or smells like or but it's hard to really put your finger on it but um i did a i, I blended in some newton pippins into um, my blends recently and i've also done a single variety as well just to um really showcase um, the characteristics of that uh, that single apple, and that actually came out pretty pretty interesting. Actually, um, in my opinion, I just think like sometimes fermenting out a single variety is um, a little misguided uh, from the cider maker's perspective. But you know, every once in a while, I do it in small batches just to see how a single varietal of apple will ferment out and how I can play with that and mix it into my blends in the future. And I was really impressed by the Newtown Pippin. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favorites at this point in time. Wow. Well, hey, um, we're after a great start here. We're going to take a short break and come back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well-known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 
818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, support us, become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So, Steve Wood, how are you doing, buddy? Fine, thanks. I've heard some interesting things. Yeah, what 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 is it? I mean, I I feel like big part of the show is is you and Alan are talking to to, to new, new cider makers, and um, I know you have a lot to share. Um, what about your region? Let's talk about micro regions because each it seems like Josh and East Hampton, Northampton, that part of Massachusetts has a wealth of apple heritage and wild apples. And Pete mentioned this little Bay Area in New Hampshire, like a micro region. Um, how important is that? But also, like in your work, what, what's your micro region where you are? Jesus, Jimmy. Um, all right, every piece of ground. I'm actually going to quote, this is actually pretty closely quoting Louisa. Every piece of ground imposes conditions on what can be grown there and what it's like. And by a piece of ground, what we both mean is the dirt, whatever you please to call it, and the microclimate and the general whatever else is growing around. So we're in a very good place for growing apples of, of a certain sort. There's a reason this place was called Macintosh country. I mean, we grew killer Macintosh. There just was a day on which people ceased to care. Um, so I, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I just, I, I, what I've done is apple growing bonehead, try to figure out what other varieties, good for cider or something else, might benefit from the same conditions that made it possible for us to grow the best Macintosh, you know, kind of in the world, not just us here, right here, but in, in the, the Champlain Valley, Maine, yeah, Merrimack Valley, Connecticut Valley, whatever. So, I don't know. Um, the trouble is, people are proclaiming about this stuff before they didn't know the first damn thing about it. This is not inexpert. 
you can't just have a career doing something else and then decide you found a beautiful place to throw apples in the ground and then start declaring about the region you've got which is mostly, I'm sorry, but that is kind of what's happening at the moment. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I can describe what we've got. What we've got is, is ground that grows and ground and climate that grows the varieties we picked very well. Makes acidic, well-structured, you know, ciders. I, um, by our view, Somebody else doesn't like it. Great, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, this matters enormously. There is a reason that Pinot Noir was chosen by those Cistercian monks in the 12th century in the Northern Rhone that became Burgundy, and that ah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot got together in, in Bordeaux and that in the Southern Rhone, Grenache and you know, in the middle Rhone, Syrah and whatever. I mean, look, this stuff was chosen over years and years of people seeing what grew well and performed well in their places. I'm like the old man of this. Like 50 years growing apples, 30 years making cider. 1150 in Burgundy, you know, we got, we got, you know, we know nada, dude. So I'm, yeah. I still, I think, look, if our ciders are any damn good, and I actually think they are pretty good given what you can get. <laughs> Sorry, gentlemen and women, but no disrespect or, or whatever. The point is, I'm, I try, we think our ciders are pretty good. We think they reflect what we're, the ground we grow, grow them in. We, if anything we do is good, it is that we every day acknowledge that we don't know what the hell we're doing here. And I've been here since 1965, and we've been growing apples. I mean, I'm sorry, we've been making cider, I guess, pretty much for as long as anybody in this country, kind of now. We don't know what we're doing. We're muddling, well, me we're muddling around in a dark <laughs> closet, dude. We're, we're just Steve, we're trying to figure it out. I'm going to talk about your size right now. So just for me as a, a newbie, when I was a newbie, once I found Farnham Hill, like the, the extra dry in, in bottle, or recently when I, when I was buying cider in cans, I got your farmhouse in cans. Um, to me, they always stand out as the standard. And, and people that may not like cider when I give them either of those, they're hooked and they like your cider. And it's, so tell me what is the extra drive? Because I want, I want to stimulate some of our listeners to go out and buy cider. Um, the extra drive to me was my go-to for several years and bottle sparkling. Um, what was it? Cause it wasn't just one variety of, of apples. It was, it, and it was the right dryness and everything. Hey, Jimmy, my question is, if that was your go-to for a few years, what were you, where were you before and where'd you go next? <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, we have tried to make... Okay, look, I'll tell you the quick 
tail. We figured out when we started growing all these cool varieties and then trying to make imitative ciders, French style, Somerset style, Hereford style, whatever, there was really an epiphany day when we thought we're getting your flavors and aromas. We didn't really know what we were doing yet, but we're getting things that we've never encountered in any of those ciders. And this is the United States of America, goddammit. Let's just make something we like from the ground we've got and the fruit we grow. And that's when we started making what we make. And what we make is acidic with tannic structure. And the idea is it's supposed to be a fruit bomb. And we don't care whether, you know, and we do not want to hear the boring conversation about the hint of mango and a saucy little wench, wench and a bit of chocolate. We just want people to drink it. And we want all of the things that we go through to contribute to their pleasure and to just tip it back. But we're looking for bright acid, clear fruit of whatever description and structure that mostly comes from the tannins and some of the apples in it all comes from the apples. And our job really, we, our job is not to get in the way. And that doesn't mean we just let it happen, let nature take its course. What it means is whatever it is that we do to make the cider, we're trying to stay out of the way of the orchard. That's great. I, I'm gonna give you an endorsement uh, Alice Waters, some of you know her from Slow Food. Um, I don't know, five or six years ago, she was at my former pub, Jimmy's Number 43. And I said, you really got to try some of these ciders. And I brought out some some really good uh, hard ciders that I like that were made, you know, naturally by, by people growing apples. And she didn't really respond to any of them. And then I pulled out a bottle of Farnham Hill Extra Dry, and she smiled, and she said she liked it. So, <laughs> well, Jimmy, that's what's in my glass right now. And in honest truth, that's the thing we're proudest of because it is the most reflective of everything we do. And everybody's running for skews. And I really get it. I get it. I get why, you know, in the modern world, you got to keep moving. We're not going to keep moving. You know, we're old. We don't feel like it. You know, whatever. But the point is, we're not running for SKUs. We've reduced our number of SKUs. Right now, we're selling extra dry in bottles, farmhouse in cans, and something we're calling dooryard in kegs. And if we can figure out how to make the bags work, we'll, we'll sell more extra dry still. We're not, we don't have ambitions beyond that. We're just trying to figure out how to make good cider still and then plug it into something. And it doesn't really fit, it appears. But, you know, hey, man, you know, we're doing fine in northern New England. Um, we just sent a pallet of kegs to Chicago of stone dry cider. Check this out. Stone, really, zero grams per liter, zero nothing. A pallet of kegs just went to Chicago. Chicago's cool. So whatever, you know, we're, um, but yeah, we're, we're going to make cider from our orchard um, or 
stop making cider for anybody but ourselves. That's that's our plan. That's great, man. Hey, now, now back to Eleanor. Another question about ice cider. So last again, last week at Cider Feast New England, I told I told one of the guests and I said, you know, I'm seeing people walk out of here with bags of Eden Ciders ice cider. And I said, you know, to me, you wouldn't believe it, but this is one of the best agricultural alcohol products in America. No, Jimmy, let me interrupt for a sec. <laughs> let me interrupt. That is the best ice cider in the world, unequivocally, hands down. <laughs> Eleanor and Albert absolutely nailed the balance between sweet, which is the point of those sort of slightly dessert things, and the bright acid, and they nailed their source of acidity and the fruitiness around it, and they made something beautiful with all due respect to our northern cousins. You know, most ice cider is trickly sweet, and you really want a glass of water or a cup of coffee. Well, that's what's confusing, and that's why I wanted to There's talk, some, talk would, about it. You would get her talking, because, but I, <laughs> I want her to talk with profound confidence. She, that, they, they have the best cider in the ice cider in the world. So it, it, It's confusing, because even when I explain it to people, Eleanor, it's the same thing that Steve said. Everyone assumes it's going to be sweet until they taste it. Well, it is, it is sweet. It's just got a really nice backbone of acidity running through it that makes it bearable. Um, yeah, as I said, you bearable. Eleanor, don't say bearable, dude. I'm out of here, but I'm going to be. But don't don't describe. Let, let Eleanor talk. Now. Like, I, I just I just don't get it. I was like this, this. They're at a cider event or cider tasting, and people are choosing to buy ice cider and walk out, out with it. Yeah, and part part with a not not insignificant sum of money to do so. The I it's ice cider is, you know, it's fairly unique. People can't find it at their local store. They've never heard of it. They don't know what to think. They taste it, and they and it's so much better than they expected. <laughs> and they're like, I might not be able to get it anywhere else, and they'll buy it. It's, it's, um, you know, the story of our early years when all we made was ice cider was, um, you know, at public events we did great. In retail stores we did terribly because if you're just walking through a store and you just see a weird-looking bottle in with the sweet wines that's you know twenty-five, thirty bucks, nobody looks, takes a second look. So. Um, yeah, public public events are really important for us. I think Steve's trying to egg you on a little bit. Um, I think there's a you got to tell us more about it because yeah, it's so, not just ice cider, it's not just ice wine. It's it's something very special. Well, as I said, I think you, I think Vermont is a place where you can make the best ice cider in the world. A because we've got the climate right. So what the term ice means is that we are pressing apples in the dead of winter when it's cold enough outside for a good reliable stretch of time that you know you're you can stick the juice outside after pressing and it will freeze before it ferments um, and concentrate all the sugars and the flavors um, and then we take sort of the twenty percent of super delicious sweet juice out of that process and partially ferment it, which leaves lots of residual apple sweetness. 
Um, so that's sort of the thumbnail on the process. Um, but the, you know, it's, we, we have more, way more interesting apples in our area than the Quebec folks do to play with. Um, and so that's really been um, a good part of it. You know, there's, there's some Macintosh and Empire in our heirloom, in our sort of flagship heirloom blend, but it's not the majority. There's Ashmead's Kernel, there's Spitzenberg, there's Golden Russet, there's Roxbury Russet, um, there's Baldwin, um, uh, Cavill Blanc, all kinds of interesting things that just give it complexity above and beyond just sweetness and acidity. Wow. Hey, I'm, I'm going to go to Pete. Pete, it's your turn now. You can ask either Eleanor or Steve a question, whether it's about technique or growing or something you'd like to learn from either one oh, of them. Gosh. And then we'll do the same. Yeah, there's Josh. so much to learn. Um, I, you know, I don't know, guys, high level, and I think we've gone probably round and round on this question over the years, but, you know, as cider evolves, I mean, right now, I don't know if I'd say we're dominated, but certainly there's a big trend in like the flavored drinks, you know, Steve, that you were alluding to. Um, I personally am, uh, I think I'm a bit more of a traditionalist. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I don't like to really add flavors. I'm really more interested in what the apples, you know, uh, do themselves and just, you know, minimal interventions in the fermentations and, and time. You know, my process is about 12 months or so to get to a bottle. So how do you, my question is, with that background, you guys have been at this a while. How do we get the consumer to appreciate that style of cider making? Is it that we need more of us? Is it we need just more time? Is it what what else do you see, you know, that are variables in, in this? Oh my God. If Steve and I knew the answer to that question, we would be so much better right? off. <laughs> it's a bit Eller, of an unfair question. Eller, 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 just answer the guy, would you? <laughs> Um, what do we need to get more people turned on to the, from consumer point of view? I don't know. I feel that, you know, when, when, when I think about the role that the trade plays, I feel like the craft beer folks were kind of early into cider because so many beer people had gone into making cider. Um, I'm sorry. I interrupt for a sec. I interrupt for a sec. The craft beer folks after craft beer had grown and crashed twice already. And everybody wanted to be in a winery or a craft brewery. And then the craft beer folks were into it. I'm sorry, Eleanor, but there was Steve, a Steve, Steve, let me finish my thought, please. Let her finish. I'm just talking about like who was actually interested in talking to us about bringing on cider. There were, I mean, there are always some wonderful unicorn places like Gramercy Tavern under Juliet Pope. But in terms of like the next circle out of restaurants, most of them, the you know, sommeliers were not are not interested in cider. It reminded me of when you walk into a steakhouse in Boston in the 1990s. They'd be like, "Oh, we've got all this cool wine list, and oh yeah, we have a beer, we have Heineken." And restaurants today are like, "Oh, we've got this great cool wine list, we've got this great craft beer list, and oh yeah, we've got a Down East in the in the you know listed at the bottom of the beer list." You know, they're not interested. <laughs> and I feel like that's it's like how do we get that 
population to turn around and start talking about how cool cider is and that it's not one thing and it's not sweet necessarily. Well, I'm going to add to that just in the, as having been a, a, a pub owner, what I saw the, the change happen maybe around 2015 or 16 was that, and this is why on-premise is important, the potential to you know dedicate a, a line. As you see now, a lot of draft systems might have a, a, a pre-mixed cocktail, might have wine on draft. I, I did feel that uh, I could have one or two rotating ciders on draft. And, and I did think that, that that made it more accessible. So I think you're onto something, Eleanor. And what about distributors too? Because they're a big part of that whole system. Yeah, and I think I think distributors are the last people to jump on trends. <laughs> like, I think the trade gets excited about something, and then the consumers get excited about something, and then the trade, and then distributors will go in for it. So, so you got you got that cute little retail shop or or beer bar, and they're buying direct from a cider maker, or then they're getting from like a specialty distributor. Yeah. And then it catches on. Yeah, that's a good one, Josh. You know, you there's a, a lot of there's a lot of consolidation going on in distribution right now, so that's going to be a challenge. But we know. I'm not going to go to that one. Yeah, Josh. Uh, question for uh, Eleanor, or Steve. Yeah, um, I guess can be a cider making as well. I mean, since you're you're using juice. Yeah, I mean, the question I had was actually more based on you know industry and, and looking forward. And uh, the reason I ask it is because you've been in the industry a lot longer than me or Pete have. So you have a little bit more perspective on, um, you know, where we've been coming from, but also where we may be heading. Um, what kind of cider do you see being drank primarily 30 years from now? Uh, what, what does the industry look like? Um, is it mainly smaller craft cideries in every town? Is it a few major cideries dominating the playing field. Um, is it fruited ciders? <laughs> you know, is it wild fermentations? Is it barrel programs? Like, what do you what do you guys see going on here in the next 10, 20, 30 years? I hope we're all drinking Farnham Hill Extra Dry. <laughs> and Steve already will be because he'll be drinking that forever. I, I want to say on that note, Josh, you mentioned Ireland. I, I think if we're going to talk industry, I remember again, it was probably about six years ago. I got to taste some of the the smaller craft ciders coming out of Ireland um, that a, a, a small importer was bringing in. And to me, that, that really opened my eyes about cider because the story is, and if you don't mind me saying it, that Ireland's one of the great apple-growing countries that at one point there was, people had presses and, and, and there was more regional cider makers and at some point, some of the, the really big cideries not only were ended up buying all the apples from those cider makers, they convinced everyone to stop pressing their own. And then you've got, you know, the Magnus and Bulmers, the two big, you know, UK cider makers. And some at some point, you were probably there, Josh. What, 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 what did you when did when did the Irish kind of craft cider movement start of people because they have all those great apples, they have the land. When did people start pressing their their own their own again? You know, to be honest, I, I don't know if I can speak to that so much. Um, when I was there, it was basically 2007, and I was just kind of getting into cider myself. Primarily, the majority of the cider I was drinking there was just in the pubs, um, Balmers, Magners, like you said. 
little sweet, you know, but really well balanced. And it was a good introduction into cider, I think. Um, and then when I came back to the States too, you know, it was most of the cider that I had access to at the local liquor stores was uh, Angry Orchard, Woodchuck, um, and then maybe some Balmers or Magnus as well. Um, so, you know, to be honest, I don't know when they first started uh, getting back into, you know, pressing their own and doing really small scale production in Ireland. Um, I can't answer that question, to be honest. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, Jimmy, I can, but I'm happy to renew. <laughs> I, I actually would like you to, because I think that's a neat example, because, we, you know, the real cider geeks would talk about England, France, and Spain, but not too many people talk about the apples of Ireland. Okay, so there was a, there was Bulmers, right? And then Bulmers did, Bulmers, I, I, look, I'm not going to go into Bulmers, but Bulmers kind of split, and there was an Irish Bulmers. And when Bulmers became Bulmers LTD, for some reason it left Irish Bulmers out. And then the guys that owned Magners, uh, right, I'm not going to go, right, um, somebody figured out a trick to selling cider, which had not worked before, which is make it a little pink, put it an ice cube in the glass, and don't put it on draft, put it in a 500 milliliter bottle. That was at the Irish Bulmers. So the first Magners came out it as Bulmers in Ireland. And it absolutely swamped the place. And then what happened thereafter was that people who had ripped apples out, including contract growers for the original Bulmers, that is the English Bulmers, started growing their own fruit, and Irish Irish ciders started to reemerge. That was around exactly the time. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was in the like mid two thousand five, six, seven, or whatever. That's when that all happened. It happened really fast, and then they came to this country. And the thing is, the only place they could sell themselves as Bulmers was Ireland. So, Bulmers in Ireland was Magners everywhere else in the world. Um, and that's, you know, that's when it happened. That's another story. That's, yeah, I'm we'll sorry. Go, we'll go, I'm no, sorry. no, this is. I, 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 I said I want to mute, mute my mic. <laughs> One thing I love about the show is that we get, we go places we never thought we would. And I do remember about six years ago, I, I did get to interview a couple of the, the craft, Irish craft cider folk. Um, so we're, there's, there's a big world out there, kids. Um, Pete, last with you, um, Greenland, New Hampshire, micro region, you've got a lot of experience growing apples. Um, what are some high notes? Like last week I, I, I tasted, uh, you represented yourself well, you had a little tasting cup. Um, at that event, your one, one of your ciders was the one I kept going back for. What was that cider? And just tell me about that. Oh, thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. That cider was called Countdown. That was the first sort of big batch uh, cider that I've made. Uh, it's a blend of about eight varieties, some cider uh, varieties and some dessert, you know, like Ida Red. So, you know, I think I got a decent percentage in there. 
Um, I took actually a portion of that cider and uh, aged it in a brandy barrel from um, a good friend who runs uh, Shelburne Orchards up in Vermont, uh, who's got a great brandy uh, company up there called Deadbird. So I've taken some of his barrels and doing some barrel aging. Um, but you know, that, so, uh, that was what I would describe as a very simple traditional dry cider, you know, and, and that's what I'm sort of interested in expanding on going forward. Um, I mentioned, uh, um, I think I mentioned anyway, I've, I've just did over about a thousand gallons this past year and I've got some, uh, about six or seven labels coming out of that, uh, including some Kingston black, a nice like golden russet blend. That's about 9%. Um, so that's like the highest alcohol I've, cider I've made and several other um, barrel aged um, and other ciders coming. So that's what's on my horizon. They're all pretty much sitting in bottle, just conditioning right now. Two or three months, they should be ready to go. Um, and uh, I'm excited about that. I have a question about that barreling. Um, I remember years ago, 10 and 12 years ago, these kids called Fable Farm up in sure. Vermont. Yeah. Had, had, they were just making... They had really tart, you know, apples that they were getting and, and the juice. And they put them in wood for like a year. And Dave Broderick, who owned the Blind Tiger in the West Village, brought down one, one, of, the, one of the wood kegs. And um, it was the most interesting side I've ever had because it was tart, but it was balanced by the wood. Can you explain to me, like, what might have happened in that, that one year in wood? Oh, gosh. Um the, the tartness never went away. The tartness stayed there. Yeah, I can try. And probably everyone else on this call might give you a different answer. But, um, you know, there's there's interaction with, with the wood and, and some tannins, um, you know, that, that may come out of that. There's all sorts of, you know, oxidation that happens in a barrel, which can really change, you know, the chemistry of that cider. Um, sometimes, you know, largely for the better, you know, some of the volatiles that might not be so, you know, pleasant after a fermentation might make their way out during that oxidation, um, which can be a great thing. So yeah, barrels are really interesting. I mean, they're tricky, um, you know, and things can go wrong in a barrel, but man, if they go right, they can be really fantastic. Yeah, and one reason I remembered is that at the time, especially with beer, I just felt that barrel aging implied overkill like you got to put it in this you know alcohol rum soaked you know barrel and it has to be like 12 percent. and this was one example of oh wow a very tart raw cider actually got better and it was still kind of light and dry uh in the end does anyone else josh eleanor or steve want to say anything about putting like raw young cider into into barrels without the intent of making it something else <laughs> or that's a whole nother subject I, I would have said you know, I've tasted a lot of over barreled stuff I mean there was as you said Jimmy the oh let's stick it in a bourbon barrel and everybody will think it's cool um, and and cider is normally pretty delicate especially if it's made from grocery store apple varieties so I think barrels are more interesting when you do have a lot of great acid aromatics um, things like that. I, I have to say, I don't. I, 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 we do a bunch of stuff. We we barrel ice cider more than we do straight cider. Um, but I've also I've I've also had this experience where something that was not that great, it had issues, sat in a barrel for a long period of time, and all of a sudden was better. 
<laughs> and I've also had the opposite, put something in a barrel and have it not do good things. And I just, I can't explain any of it. So it's, and is it, it's different barrel to barrel, right? Yeah. Oh yes. The same thing in two different barrels comes out completely different. Yeah. Jimmy, you're asking for it. Go for it. <laughs> All right. So Eleanor, um, you're, you're using relatively recently harvested oak, meaning to say your use of those barrels is partly extractive, right? Um, we've never yeah, bought, yeah, we've never no, bought no, new no. barrels. I'm not saying new, new barrels. barrels. Yeah. I'm not talking about new barrels. I'm talking barrels that have been used for red or white wine or whatever that still have some of those some of those vanillins and other things in them, right? For ice cider, yes. But yes. we have barrels now that have been used many, many years. Yes, I know you do. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the thing you were talking about. I'm sorry, my, my dear friend. Okay, oak is like chocolate syrup. And there is a reason that people landed on oak and white oak and chestnut and whatever, which is tight-grained woods that were not resinous because they had to make tanks and they didn't have sanitary stainless welder guys. And they did a pretty good job of that. And they landed on things, oak in particular, that lended this interesting element to the wine. The fact that now wineries, you can buy fairly cheap wine, buy barrels from wineries who've used them one time because they're just sucking that flavor out of them. I really don't think cider should go that way. And I'm not, I, I, I totally agree with it, what Eleanor has done with the, you know, semi-aged barrels and whatever, fiddle around with all that. But man, are we trying to grow fruit and express the fruit or not? And if we're gonna put flavor in it, why are we doing, why are we sucking it out of a board instead of just putting in our raspberry? So, um, but that's, and that is totally consistent. I, I think the best uh, French and German and Italian wine is stuff that was made either in stainless or in old, old oak. And I should say we have about 50 barrels here, but they're not, they're old barrels. And, you know, yeah, they do, they do some cool things. That microoxygenation is cool. And there are microbial things I don't understand, but we're not pulling tannins out of them anymore. We're not pulling, I'm sorry, vanillins and tannins out of them anymore. Um, so, sorry. Jimmy, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but you guys are good. See, we, we, we got you to go deep, not that deep, and we got to talk with Eleanor and uh, with the two new guys on the block, Josh and Pete. Uh, I just want to thank you guys so much for joining me here. A uh, big shout-out to our engineer, Armin Spengen, and our producing intern, Alex Tran. Uh, thank you, Josh, Eleanor, Steve, and Pete. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We're going to catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Thanks for listening. June 2022, we've done a, a little bit of uh, cider summer. Summer is cider with, with you guys. And um, thanks so much to everybody. All right. 
See you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.